You are listening to History Man, a platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are very excited to have Michael Burgess, a Southern historian and teacher of U.S. history at River Bluff High School in Lexington, South Carolina. So welcome, Michael. Uh, thank you, and thank you for having me on, and thank you for all the work you've done over the years. Michael, we have uh, sat down in our and had a conversation prior to this episode, and you were regaling me of the history around River Bluff High School, with at least this community where River Bluff High School sits uh, sits on top of, and it's it's so fascinating. I'd love for our listeners to hear a little bit about uh, your research and and what you have found, especially as it pertains to the Colonial Revolutionary War period. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Uh, for our listeners, River Bluff High School uh, is located at 320 Corley Mill Road in Lexington, South Carolina. Uh, it opened in 2013, and this is my 27th year in the classroom, and this is my ninth year at River Bluff. So I was actually hired before the building was built in, in 2012. And the attractive piece that hired me was because I was coming from another one of our high schools in Lexington was the principal dropped a a survey archaeological report on my desk and said you're welcome to do whatever you want to do in terms of programming development research etc if you'll come join me here at River Bluff and so at the time I had pretty much decided to stay at Lexington High School but after reading the archaeological report I saw uh, an opportunity here on a high school campus to research, interpret, uh, preserve, restore, and open up some valuable history sites to the community. Uh, our sites, and we'll, we'll circle back around, and I'll do it in chronological order, and then we'll circle back around and talk more about the colonial and revolution, includes everything from a French and Indian War, a, a German immigrant house site that during the French and Indian War was a stockaded fort and during the American Revolution was a outpost or supply station for the Patriots uh, in which the family uh, was attacked by a group of provincials uh, and were able to fight them off. One of the members of the family was, was, an American, was, was a Patriot militia officer. The history continues that in the 1820s River, the 125 acres that make up River Bluff became part of a 1700 acre antebellum plantation uh, that in eight, according to the 1860 census produced 3,600 bushels of corn. Uh, there were 53 enslaved persons uh, and the family's house, while not on our campus, is still extant, but on our campus itself, we believe we have found, and we're still working to confirm this, the plantation slave cemetery, possible slave cabin sites, uh, the ferry road that, uh, that is the road across the Saluda River connecting from what is Granby, what is today the Casey West Columbia area, to what is today Irmo, runs through the plantation, runs through our campus, and we have extant portions of it. Uh, maybe more exciting is Sherman's left wing to Infantry Corps and his cavalry uh, will come through the campus on February 16th, 17th, and 18th, 1865, 
and at the bottom of our campus is the site of the second building of the Zion Lutheran Church community, which was built in 1792. Uh, it will move in 1922 up the hill, and complete with that, you have foundations, bricks of the church, and a cemetery uh, that goes along with it Some early, with some of the earliest German settlers in this area, the Dutch Fork, buried there. After the Civil War, the history continues. We have the site of a Reconstruction-era uh, church, Mount Zion AME, which will move from the campus in 1929. And we also have the Mount Zion AME Cemetery, uh, which had been, I won't say lost, but it was really overgrown when we got here in 2013. And within that cemetery, we have just story after story after story, but none more poignant than the story of Private Davis Gant, an African-American World War I soldier, marries the daughter of one of the founding members of Mount Zion AME Church. So they are married on this campus, serves in the 371st Regiment, is mortally wounded during the, during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, uh, lingers until he's able to return home and he dies in New York in February. But we have uh, a large granite marker attributing his, his service in serving the country in the, the World War. It doesn't mention World War I, it says the World War. And you get the story of him being married and then his funeral being within yards of each other uh, in a period from 1914 to 1918. So that's the overview. As you can see, we have, we have a, a rich number of resources. From that, we've developed uh, one history hike that I train every two years, a group of students to be the docents, the tour guides, the performers, if you will. And we take all of our sophomores, not at once, because there's 500 of them, broken into classes on this history hike. And it's been part of our school tradition. Uh, this year, we founded the River Bluff Historical Preservation Society, which is student-run, student-led. And they are actually continuing to do the, the, the cleanup in terms of brush and, and just all the the, the stuff that has grown over the years in, in the different areas. They're developing talks and tours. And, you know, we, we are now making an effort to create a history hike at the bottom of the campus sites, the Colonial Revolution Civil War sites, which have been really overgrown. I mean, think the thickest jungle you can imagine in Vietnam. And that's what myself and an adjacent landowner worked on last summer to, to cut some trails in and this spring we have used those sites in our, our United States history classes. Wow, I, this, I didn't realize this campus was such a focal point of history. It's, uh, it's fascinating, especially when you think about uh, uh, the New World and, and how they settled South Carolina uh, and how this, this was a German settlement for the most part. Correct. Saxe-Gotha, right? Correct. And then when he, William Henry Drayton came through uh, as the precursor to the Revolutionary Wars, they were trying to generate enthusiasm or kind of bring people into the fold of this patriotic zeal and, and this movement to to uh, have a independent nation. They came into this area and they, they had a lot of pushback from the German settlers in this area. Uh, so... It's interesting to, to me to find a Patriot soldier, not just in this area, but one that uh, really had a linkage to Fort Granby and, and all these other 
uh, or all these other engagements that happen around here. So I'm really interested in what you have to tell us about this. Right, right. And the family is the, the, the family is the Dreer family, which is a popular name here in the Midlands, whether it's Dreer State Park or Dreer Shoals Dam, otherwise known as the Lake Murray Dam or Dreer High School. Uh, but the, the two people we, we generally focus on is Godfrey Dreer Sr., okay. who is a German immigrant who, who, who arrives here in the mid-1740s and, and is given the land grant, which is on this campus uh, adjacent or alongside 12 Mile Creek. And then his son is, is Captain Godfrey Dreer Jr. in, in the American Revolution. Uh, the, the, and, and like you, I've heard often that the best that could be said about the Dutch Fork during the Revolution is they were neutral or there was pushback. Yet when you talk about the Dreers, there are other families throughout the Dutch Fork that are ardent patriots. And, and I would almost revise that train of thought to where, like most of South Carolina, the Dutch Fork was, was divided uh, between loyalists and, and patriots. Uh, you do have a Dutch Fork regiment in the Loyalist Militia under Daniel Clary that will be at Musgrove's Mill that comes from this area, but you will also have multiple Patriot units formed and recruited in this area that will serve with distinction. That's very interesting. Uh, so how much of a plantation atmosphere was this during the Revolutionary War? You talked about this campus was part of what, what is it, 1400? Now, it, it's a, so the way I would I, I describe it is during the Revolution, it is your typical frontier farm. farm. Right. Uh, and it's in the 1820s and 1830s that a large landowner by the name of George Washington Lorick from the, the opposite side, the north or, or east side of the Saluda River, depending on where you're looking at it at the map, Essentially, think Irmo Chapin, if you go to a okay. map, right. uh, owns 7,600 acres over there. Okay. Uh, and he acquires 1,700 acres on this side, and he gives it to his son, Samuel Lorick. So it's really two different things. You're going to get your typical antebellum plantation from the late 1820s until the end of the Civil War. And the land will remain in the family until the last male, Andrew Jackson Lorick, Samuel Lorick's son will die in the early 1900s. Um, but the Dreer family is doing your basic frontier situation. I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, you know, they have a mill. They're also farming. Uh, the ferry also opens, but it's not owned by the Dreers. When the Loricks buy up all this, uh, they will all inherit the mill and, and build a bigger one. They will take over ownership of the ferry and then 1,700 acres of land for, for them to use. So the Corley Mill Road that we are on, that is, that is separate and apart from the mill that you're talking about that is on this property. All right, so actually the, there's a lineage. Okay. I mean, it goes from the Dreer family to the Lorick family, and then with the death of Andrew Jackson Lorick in the early 1900s, this property is bought up by the Corley family and the Earhart family. Same mill then? Same, same, literally you, and now the, the Corleys will convert it and it might have already had, at one point we have a dual sawmill and gristmill down there okay. during the antebellum period after the Civil War, but the Corleys will focus extensively on a sawmill. 
So, so there, there was a mill down on Twelve Mile Creek, you know, right along the boundary of this campus, uh, from the late 1740s until the the, the mid 20th century. So, in, during the Revolutionary War period, what kind of mill was it? It's a grist mill. A grist mill. So we're talking. Uh, corn, wheat, whatever, they're, they're, they're processing that. Right, right. And, and that's why uh, it is a particularly important site in, in certainly 1780, 81, and 82 for the Patriots because you have a, a Patriot family with a farm and a mill that can provide supplies. And which is why on July, you know, roughly July 2nd, uh, 1781, it gets the attention of a detachment from Lord Rawdon, who's in Granby, returning from 96, as a focus of there's a possibly a Patriot officer there, there's a mill that needs to be, you know, taken out of service, and then of course barns and other structures that need to be burnt, because this is an important uh, Patriot supply point. It's a logistical uh, center for the Patriot cause. Do we have any idea of what this mill looked like? I have not seen any pictures of any version of this mill. Uh, there are descriptions. Uh, I would compare it maybe the mill, the grist mill you get under Drear is like some of the extant mills in this state, like Haygood's Mill up in Pickens County. Uh, the sawmill is, is, is fairly modernized, and it actually stretches on both sides of Corley Mill Road. Now, one of the Corleys shared with me that they remember this big band, I guess, that turns the wheels, which would stretch across Corley Mill Road on the top. And it was a fairly sizable operation. But in terms of actual photographs or drawings or whatnot, that's still one of the things we are hoping to discover. I was just curious as to, you know, when the British came in and they took over a place like Rugely, Rugely Mills or even Fort Granby, mm. which was a, uh, a trading post down near Casey or at Casey, uh, they would put a Vetus uh, abatee up right. around and, and dig trenches and and, uh, and and have redoubts and things like that. Uh, I'm curious as if the Patriots went to that much trouble uh, on their on their mills. Uh, and and we, we have found no evidence anecdotally or in documentation or or even in the pension applications that refer to it as being fortified. So now, when you go down there, would there be trench works of any any sort? None. 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 So Not, nothing that is apparent, but the area of course floods uh, periodically. Just just, you know, as late as a couple weeks ago, the whole area was flooded. So it it has all been silted over in 2015, the thousand year flood. Uh, it looked down in this area where the mill would have been it was it looked like a lake. And I'm talking about 15, maybe 15 feet under that was the mill site. Well, tell us a story uh, that, uh, that comes out of this particular uh, mill. Okay. And the story really uh, begins with the birth of Godfrey Dreher in, in 1720 in what is today Germany. Uh, he immigrates here in 1745 and is granted 150 acres on 12 Mile Creek where he will... Uh, open a mill. He is by trade coming to America a wheelwright. So building mills and operating mills is what he brings to, to the colonies. Uh, he will also donate the land 
for what will ultimately become in 1792 the Second Lutheran Church. It is thought he was also one of the founders in 1745 of the first Lutheran Zion Lutheran Church building, though we're not real sure of that location. We have a monument by 12 Mile Creek that just mentions in the nearby area. Uh, that could be anywhere. It, it could have been in, in his house or the neighboring Cleckley family, also a group of German immigrants who are on the other side of 12 Mile Creek, their house. Or there could have been a, a structure of some sort. Uh, we also know that uh, in 1759, he petitions the colonial government. We're in the midst of the French and Indian War to for funds to build a stockaded house fort. And indeed, in 1760, uh, what is today Corley Mill Road, a Cherokee war party comes up the Saluda River, ends up a mile and a half from here, scalping uh, two German, German settlers, one of them by the name of Jacob Drafts, who thanks to the work of Dr. John Frierson, who found the, the, the graves of these two men, has marked them, and then they proceed on to attempt to attack this fort. But the location of, of the Drear house and barns are, are on, a, on a knoll, you know, his outbuildings. Where the mill is down by the river, this is on a uh, one of the best defensive positions I could, I could take someone to, to where it would be obvious. Yes, this is where I would build my house so it wouldn't flood. This is also where I'd build my house if I'm on the frontier and I need to be defensible. So after some ineffectual shots exchanged between the two, the Cherokee War Party continues. Uh, they skirt by Granby. They end up in what is today present-day Pillion, where the colonial militia will surround and eliminate them. And in, according to a Charleston newspaper account at the time period, will cut the, the bodies up and feed them to their dogs. His son, Godfrey Dreer Jr., is born in 1760. Uh, and both father and son are alive during the revolution. The father will be noted for providing supplies to the Patriot Army, everything from flour to corn to beef to pork, the sweet potatoes. The son will, will sign up in roughly 1778-1779 with the Orangeburg District Militia. At this time, Lexington County is part of Orangeburg District. So we're talking about about the time that the British decided to change to a southern campaign. Correct, right. correct. With, with the right with the fall of Charleston in June of 1780, June second, in fact, that Godfrey Dreer Jr. will sign up to be a part of Richard Hampton's Orangeburg District Militia, which serves under Thomas Sumter, and he's going to serve in this unit 330 days. Uh, Part of his service involved the battle at Fishdam Ford with Sumter. Uh, we know this because after the war he petitions to have a horse he, he lost at Fishdam Ford, compensated for by, by at this, the South Carolina government. We also know that there is family tragedy at Fishdam Ford, or it starts at Fishdam Ford. Uh, Godfrey Dreer Jr.'s sister, uh, Mary is married to Johannes Kinsler, who also lives on the Saluda River, uh, I would say more up towards the modern-day Lake Murray Dam. At Fish Dam, Johannes is, is severely wounded. He is home recuperating 
from this wound in, in November, December of 1780, where he is murdered by Tory raiding party. Uh, Mary returns home, of course, to live at, at the Dreer place on our campus. By So we don't know if, because of that, Dreer is at Blackstock's, but his unit is, is at Blackstock's, so he could have been at the Battle of Blackstock's plantation. We do know he is home by April 1781, but then is called back up and in June of 1781 participates in actions designed to prevent first Loyalist and then Rawdon from reinforcing the British garrison at 96. This is during the, the May and June siege of 96. With that, uh, Hampton with Dreer ambushes a Loyalist group at Vaudette's Old Field in present-day Pickens off Cedar Grove Road. And then there are also participants in a significant defeat to the Patriot cause that, that really gets brushed under the carpet by historians, and that is at Juniper Springs, where on June 18, 1781, Charles Middleton, uh, with, with a Patriot force, including Richard Hampton and Godfrey Dreer Jr., is nipping at Rawdon's rear guard. And so Rawdon baits, baits the hook and sends out foragers to draw this unit into action. And this literally happens on, main, uh, on Peach Festival Road, which is the main road into to Gilbert. Middleton takes the bait. They engage this group of quote-unquote foragers, which is simply a holding force. And Major John Coffin's British Cavalry sweeps down from their flank and rear and destroys this force under Middleton, which had been upwards of 200 plus. Uh, the force scatters. Ron reports there are four Patriot officers dead, maybe 20 to 30 enlisted men, and that later Middleton is only able to reassemble 45 members of this original 2 to 250 man force which would make sense that once Rawdon passed, that, that Dreer is once again at home here on 12 Mile Creek on the River Bluff campus. On July 1st, 1781, Rawdon, returning from 96, enters Granby, and we believe on July 2nd, 1781, he dispatches uh, a company of, of the South Carolina Royalists, a provincial unit, out to Dreer Station uh, to you know, destroy the buildings, destroy the mill, and if possible, captured the Patriot Godfrey Dreer Jr. Wow. So this is after Juniper Springs. That yes. That was this a running is, battle. Yeah, Juniper Springs was June, June 18, 1781. Uh, Rodden, of course, once he dispatches this, goes forward to 96 okay. to relieve it, chases Green briefly after Green withdraws from 96, and now is returning to the low country with really two columns. There's the evacuation column of Loyalist citizens that is further to the west, on the on, which goes through what is today Ridge Spring Mineta on the old Charleston Road. Rodden himself is putting himself between Green and the evacuation column by following the road along the Saluda River, which brings him to Granby at 11 o'clock in the evening on July 1st, 1781. Okay. All right, so Dreer comes back to his place, He's, right? Right. Mary Dreer, his sister? Yes, Mary Dreer Kinsler. Who lost her husband, right? Correct. She's here as well. Correct. 
So they're all here at the house. They're all here at the house. Okay. And then Rowden sends the, some loyalists out. So to get South, here. From the South Carolina Royalist Unit. Okay. Right. Uh, and they're going to have a really rough couple days here. Is that right? Uh, they are. They, they arrive anywhere from 20 to 30 men on horseback. Uh, stories differentiate as to how the Dreers were alerted. One is Mary Kinsler saw them coming down the ferry road, which pieces of which are still on our campus and exist. And here, Jesus, the, 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 the Redcoats are coming, the Redcoats are coming. Another account says one of the Dreer enslaved persons hollers that they're coming. Either way, Dreer has a few minutes to prepare. Everybody goes into the loft. I think this is a standard frontier cabin house situation with a first floor and a loft. Uh, with that, Dreer and his younger brother John armed themselves. And the one of the officers of this unit, depending on the story, uh, it's either one or two officers, depending on the account you read, enters the house, realizes they're upstairs, and at the foot of the stairs, as he begins to ascend, this British officer uh, Dreer shoots him. Uh, if you believe the two-officer account, Dreer shoots the other one, too. And they go stumbling out of the house. One or two of them are mortally wounded. Their men see this and are thrown into a panic. Dreer mounts the front porch, fires at, at some of the those that are still milling around, wounds others, and drives this unit off. Uh, that From that, Again, there's two different accounts I've looked at. One is Alexander Garden's 1828 account, and another one's a family history published in the Lexington paper in 1901. But you have one to two British officers of the SC Royalists. I mean, they would have been Americans, but we'll call them British officers, are, are killed here on our campus and, of course, buried somewhere on our campus. Uh, the Royalists are driven away. They, they do no destruction to the farm, to, to the crops to the buildings, to the mill, and are driven back to Granby. I say they had a bad couple of days because then the next morning, July 3rd, 1781, uh, against Rawdon's orders, the Royalists decide to go on a foraging expedition with roughly, you know, 50, 48 to 50 uh, mounted men, wagons, etc. And they move from Granby, uh, present day near where the rock quarries are on by the Casey River Walk, etc., down the old state road, which is being preserved by both the Heritage Preserve and what will be the 12,000-year history park, crosses Congaree Creek, and understanding that Rawdon is in Granby is going to need supplies. The American officer, who has been sent by Green to trail him, a gentleman by the name of Henry Lee, or Light Horse Harry Lee, or the father of Robert E. Lee, has dispatched a unit under Captain Joseph Eagleston to interdict the soon-to-be-had foraging expedition because they need supplies. And the one area that has farms for that are, are south along the Congaree River at what is today the Sandy Run community. There is a swamp along 12 Mile Creek by the name of Hogabook Swamp. Uh, and it will be a famous swamp in the 1800s, even in the 1900s, as being a horrible place to go through. People get lost in there. People die in there. People are complaining about the road through there. 
uh, it is a perfect place to ambush a mounted column with wagons where a creek runs across the road and the swamp would be to the right and to the left. And when this unit enters there, Eagleston springs his surprise. And what tells me that it's in this three, surrounded by three sides of water is there are zero Patriot casualties and 45 British uh, cavalry, cavalry men and officers surrender without a, without a fight. And the only place that happens is where you can't get off the road, you can't go backwards, you can't go forwards. Therefore, you can either stand and die or you can surrender. And they surrender. Uh, they do chase. A couple do get away and Eagleston chases them back to the British pickets, which are at Congaree Creek. So in a matter of two days, Ron has lost at least one to two officers of the SC Royalist at Dreer Station and then loses uh, a quarter of his overall cavalry uh, for both columns, or in this one column, loses almost half of his cavalry. And, and therefore, he is now blind, and he quickly summons his, his army and gets out of Granby, pushes Lee aside at Congaree Creek, and goes on to Orangeburg, knowing that if he waits much later, he's going to have a huge problem. A fantastic story. That's, that's great. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of your projects that you have going on. Right All right. So currently, one of, of, one of which is, is we're continuing the research and, and work to find out uh, locations of a slave cabin. We, we believe we have, found, we have found upwards of 70 hand-wrought nails that have had dated to pre-1850. We have found handmade bricks or the old put the clay in the wooden box, bake it, that would also be antebellum. We just haven't found anything that, that determines uh, if who, who actually lived at these structures on our campus. Uh, we're currently working as we approach the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution, uh, opening up the area, and folks will have to come out to River Bluff to see this, that below the football stadium, which has been pretty inaccessible for the last seven years, which would lead us to the Dreer site, the site of the Second Zion Lutheran Church built in 1792, the Ferry Road, you know, all the, the colonial revolutionary Civil War sites that would be appropriate for the community to tour. And I think that's important to note. What we're looking to do is not only do interpretation and offer tours, but create for our community a real live history walk that they can take uh, on our campus and, and, and have all the research and the story and everything marked uh, because we were blessed by receiving this campus from, fortunately from the efforts of taxpayers, uh, an opportunity to preserve disappearing history in Lexington County and tell the story for everyone in our community to, to come out and appreciate. This is almost like an undergrad type of research project that you would find in a college. This uh, is actually pretty cool, man. It, 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 and it's all from sheer stumbling into things. Is so it? it certainly went when, you know, the first year, I, cool, I got an archaeological port. I went to these sites, and it literally, there was no real plan. It just sort of evolved. Real quickly, before we get uh, finish up with this episode, this story about the Dreers and the, the firing onto the British soldiers as they were coming into the house, this story actually uh, came back up 
with uh, Sumner? Is that what you said? Yeah, yes, and, and, so indeed. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. So maybe the neatest thing I found in the 1901 local newspaper story, which, which the reporter was telling scraps of Lexington history, was an account that during the debates over Kansas, bleeding Kansas, uh, in the 1850s, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner uh, took aim at South Carolina, and we know he'll take aim again, uh, about not having contributed or done anything in the American Revolution, of having no, no part. And South Carolina Senator Andrew P. Butler will respond by telling this story, and we'll talk about the story being the bravest and most successful struggle of the entire war, that one man by his boldness and courage defeated and put to flight a whole company of British cavalry to defend South Carolina. And it's this story of Godfrey Dreer and, and, and the skirmish at Dreer Station uh, that he uses. Now, we know that doesn't end well for Charles Sumner because he'll later up his attacks on Andrew Butler. He doubled down. He doubled down and talked about Butler being in love with the harlot of slavery. Uh, that, of course, leads to Butler's relative, Preston Brooks, going into the Senate chamber and beating Charles Sumner with a cane. So uh, it's an interesting connection from this campus to the caning of Charles Sumner. As a final note, what does liberty mean to you? Liberty means that I have a right to raise my family, uh, to practice my religion, to make decisions that impact myself and my family without undue interference uh, and obstruction from some governmental body. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.